Reading the four hour work week was mind blowing to me. I finally understood that you don't need to spend 10 or 20 years in a corporation to be an entrepreneur and like start your own thing. It just flipped everything that I knew about what I had to do on its head. I don't have to wait. All right, so we are here at Hacker Noon with the Non-Technical Founder Podcast. I have my guest, Zach Curley. I'm Patrick Murray. I'm going to be guest hosting for Hacker Noon, at least for a couple episodes until they tell me never to come back. I'm a founder of onairparking.com. We've been featured in Forbes, the Denver Post, nationally selling parking right now. We're in 27 markets. We do millions of dollars in business. My first guest is Zach Curley, a very dear friend of mine. He's co-founder and CEO of IndieSource. He's an entrepreneur and motivator with experience working with both private and public sector organizations. Zach has consulted hundreds of businesses in the fields of sales and marketing strategy, business fundamentals, and operational logistics. Him and his partner, Jesse Dombroviak, have built IndieSource into a multi-million dollar operation, which has developed, manufactured, and launched over 300 fashion brands to date. This year, IndieSource made its first brand acquisition in Little Mass, a 21-year-old children's line sold in over 250 stores nationally. And Zach was recently named into Forbes's 30 Under 30 in apparel magazine top 30 under elite. Sunday Night Blues creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location, skills, and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one-on-ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at IndeedPrime.com slash HackerNoon to flip the script on the job search. That's IndeedPrime.com slash HackerNoon. I want to talk a little bit about where um, we came up with the concept for this non-technical founder podcast. So David Smook, the founder of Hacker Noon, is a friend of mine. And I wrote an article on Hacker Noon a while back about kind of how I felt some imposter syndrome being a non-technical founder and how it really felt like a stranger in a strange land. And as I've been speaking to more friends about this, Um, It seems like this is a common theme, especially for people in the tech world or in other industries, kind of this imposter syndrome feeling as a CEO. I know Zach's felt it with his textile company and um, IndieSource. So, you know, David, though he has mostly a technical following with Hacker Noon, thought it would be a great idea for different entrepreneurs um, to hear different stories from non-technical founders and to show the other side of things. Um, So awesome to have you, Zach. Thanks for having me, man. Good to be here. So Zach and I would record, I guess at this point they were like fake podcasts, but we would always have like weekly calls and then it turned into something where we started recording it. So it's cool to finally be recording something with you that we're going to share with the world. Right. And who knows whether, you know, the old stuff will resurface. I think we were just knew we were like, we, we just need to start recording this. I don't know what we're going to do with it, but let's just start recording this. Right. So maybe one day it'll turn into something. True, true. <clears throat> So really excited to get into Columbia, Maryland and uh, the planned community of where you grew up. But first kind of like paint a picture of Zach Hurley from zero to like five or six years. What was life like? Were both of your parents working? Sure. Um, so I was an incredibly shy kid, I think is was one like important 
component of like my first five years as a, as a human. Uh, extremely shy. I'm not sure why. I just think I, um, I just didn't really know how to socialize at all. Um, my my parents remained consistent like throughout my life, like extremely supportive. My mom was an entrepreneur who uh, ran a video production company. Uh, pretty much supported me in everything that I did. Didn't care really like if I did what she wanted. It wasn't like that. Um, and then my grandparents also both own their own businesses as well. But yeah, I mean, I'd say uh, it was a pretty nice childhood. Although, you know, I was, you know, I can't remember a lot of this, but, but my parents tell me that I was deathly scared of, you know, raising my hand in class. Um, just like really doing anything that would put me on the spot. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So it'll be exciting to hear how you got over that. But so you, you grew up in this town, Columbia, Maryland, and it's so interesting to me because as I am in the parking world and I'm looking at things, planned communities are just, they're an anomaly to me. It's such a, a funny thing. But so Columbia, Maryland is a planned community consisting of 10 self-contained villages. It began with the idea that a city could enhance its residents' quality of life. Creator and developer Jim Rao saw the new community in terms of human values rather than merely economics and engineering. So did your parents like choose this community because it was a planned community? It was 67 that it was around. So you were born in 88. So obviously it didn't just start. Did well, they? it did actually. So oh. my, my, interestingly enough, my grandparents moved there in 67. Wow. So they were one of the first people, they moved into the first village in the first village that, that, I mean, there was nothing. And so they were in Baltimore before that. Um, and they moved in, in 67. So that meant my mom was seven years old and, uh, yeah, they, they helped build it, you know? Wow. Um, so they were involved from the very beginning. And what were your grandparents looking for out of a community like that? You know, I, I think the pitch is pretty good. You know, like I think the whole idea is, is instead of the things popping up randomly or, uh, having a suburb that's just like, just, it just, it gets created randomly, right? Based off of the economy and different things like that. Like actually having some forethought into what do we want our community to look like um, already changes the dynamic because most places aren't like that. And so suburbs form around cities and that's just like what happens. But it's not thought out. And so I think the pitch is like, well, we can not only create infrastructure, but community centers, fitness areas, interfaith organizations, like ways for us to like live and thrive and grow and, and, and like, you know, be the creators of our own destinies. Right. Um, not just like move off to some rural area. And, and the big thing was they wanted it to be a city, right. They didn't want it to be a suburb. They were like, this is going to be a city named Columbia. And there's going to be everything that you need. You don't have to go to Baltimore. Mm. It's going to have everything you need there. And that was one of like the big parts of it. It's like actually, planning it to a point where you would have everything you need. And I just thought that was so interesting because it gives the power to the people. Um, obviously like Jim Rouse, like thought of the idea, but it happens from thousands of people that are like going and living there, you know? Totally. And that your grandparents were a part of that. That's huge. And it's, it's interesting. I was recently talking to somebody and they just mentioned how if you have everything around you that you need in terms of grocery stores, community centers, whatever else, you save so much time. So he was mentioning Albuquerque, New Mexico, how you can get around the whole city 
and you know, you can do whatever you need to in a day and then you still have half of the day to do stuff compared to Los Angeles mm-hmm. where you are, <laughs> where getting right. to and from work or anywhere else could take up a full day. Right. Right. So very, very interesting true. concept. Okay. So then you grew up like this. Did you know you were growing up in like a planned community? Definitely not. I don't think any kid really knows what they're in because they only have that to compare it to. So I had no idea until I was much older what was going okay. on. Interesting. But looking back, was it actually as advertised? Did, were you using these facilities at the planned community? Did you get along with your neighbors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that there, I'm sure there's lots of other towns that aren't planned that have like really good community dynamics, but I, I do think that um, it was cool to just have access to all these things. All the names of the streets were really interesting and weird. You always knew you were in Columbia because like the street names were, were different and like, they're just the, like the setup was just kind of different. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, when I left, I realized just how special it was. Interesting. So cool to me. Okay. So you're there with your parents and I have met your parents and your grandpa and I know what kind of awesome people they are. How did your mom instill confidence in you as a kid? What kind of things did you do together that you think could have impacted who you are today? Um, she, well, I mean, we did everything. I was her first kid. So I think she was probably like, you know, a little, you know, not over the top, but like very much like there for me at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, so she, yeah, I mean, I think she knew I was very shy at first. And so she just tried to get me to like come out of my shell a little bit. And then, you know, you know, by the time I did come out and it was a very stark contrast and she, you know, then she was just trying to like calm me down because I became kind of like a lunatic. Uh, my grandparents were, um, th- my grandparents are interesting because they're complete polar opposites in how they are. So my grandma's entire, she's extremely independent woman. And, you know, uh, she's a total entrepreneur. I mean, it's unbelievable. This woman doesn't care what anybody else says. She just will go and do things. And so I have memories with her of her as a kid, her sneaking me into uh, movie theaters and museums and different things in DC. She would always take me around to DC and I would see her get caught, like get caught red handed, like sneaking into some place. And she would just play it off. Like, Oh, I didn't know. And nothing ever <laughs> happened. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that was like an interesting, like early experience. My grandfather is, um, is a cantor. And, uh, so he's, you know, he was a leader in the, in the Columbia community and kind of like a little celebrity in the area, everywhere we went, people knew Shappy, Shappy. They just loved him and they still, you know, everybody loves him in that community. So he's just, um, a big, big time leader in that area. Just, over the top love though, I would say is the one common denominator between everybody. It's like extreme love, lots of kissing and, you know, mushy stuff. So mm-hmm. it was, is something that I think not everybody gets. So as an adult, I'm like, so thankful for that because it was, it was like, I don't care anything. What doesn't matter what happens. We love you so much and go do your thing. Sunday Night Blues creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location, skills, and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one-on-ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at IndeedPrime.com slash HackerNoon to flip the script on the job search. That's Indeed, P-R-I-M-E dot com slash HackerNoon. I think all of these questions are interesting to me now that I'm a new dad, right? It's like planned communities, 
Um, it sounds like, so these were the grandparents that were close by to you, right? Yep. The two yep. you're mentioning. They were basically yeah. my parents too. Like they're there every single day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's so important, you know, if, if you're filling up kids with love early on, it's, it never depletes, right? You'll live your whole life, you know, when your grandparents pass, et cetera. It's kind of like, that's always there with you and you can always tap into it, especially during hard times in life. Yeah. So cool. Uh, okay. So you were ridiculously shy. You said your mom kind of was, she was helping you out of it. Was that what got you out of it? Just your mom putting you in weird circumstances or was there something that, that happened? Um, I remember trying to think about what could have been the cause of this, like at, at landmark and in a couple of other times, like what, what triggered, um, this kind of thing that I haven't, cause, cause one of the things that I do now, I kind of went the other direction and I like, I tend to, without thinking, like try to go against the grain. And, and sometimes that gets me into a lot of trouble. Um, but I do have certain memories, you know, at about third grade where, uh, I got in trouble because of some other kids that did some stuff. Um, and I remember being pissed about it. Like, you know what? screw it. I don't care anymore. Like if I'm going to get in trouble and I'm not going to do anything, like, you know, I'm just going to do what I want. And a couple of things like that, that, that kind of had me like now testing. And I think you grow up and you start to like talk to girls and things change. And so I just came out of my shell a little bit, but I do have some distinct memories of being like really pissed off at the system. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Good for you. Yeah. You needed to experience it. It's similar to my wife, Roya. Yeah. She talked about how she was just always just trying to be a good kid growing up. But yeah, for it only lasts for a certain point and kids have to be assertive for themselves or nobody else is going to be. Yeah. And I think you learn quickly. Right. And so yeah. if you, you, you test something and it works and so then you go and do it again mm-hmm. and you right. know, I'm sure you know this even with your kid because it's like just one little thing and they like, they pick up on, on patterns. So right yeah. away you test something like, Oh my God, I can't believe I got away with that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so by the time I'm in middle school, I'm just like terrible, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Good. Good for you. You learned. So any entrepreneurial type things growing up? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely didn't think they were entrepreneurial when I was a kid. I didn't know what, what I was doing. I don't even know how I got these ideas, but I, you know, I think. Sorry, you sell broke a lot up. of candy on the bus. You broke um, up. I'd have my mom take me to. Sure. So I would, I would sell a, a considerable amount of candy on my school bus you know, growing up, I would just take, my mom would take me to like a, what's like a Costco around here. And I just buy tons of candy and resell it. And like, it was one of those things where I just remember like, God, these people just don't care. Like these kids have so much money. Like, this is insane. She would take me and I would just fill it up, go resell it, buy it, resell it. It was, uh, I did that for a long time. Um, and then, I mean, just other traditional things, obviously like shoveling snow and, you know, right. Picking up stuff. And, you know, I'd also, remember getting a gift from um, my mom. It was like a snow cone machine. So I'd go around and like sell snow cones in the summer to like all the kids and their parents. Mm-hmm. Cause That's I just amazing. had this thing. And so that was another good one, which was just like, you know, taking a gift and turning it into cash. Yeah. That's amazing. How much were you selling each snow cone for? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure it was like a few dollars at least. And so you would travel with this thing and sell it like door to door or how would you actually sell the snow cones? Yeah, we could, we would go with like, it's a little, it was a little white machine and you put ice into it and then it just makes the snow. So we would just go around with it and just like make it there. Cause it, you know, like door to door, you would knock on people's doors and be like, Hey, do you want snow cones? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
that's it <laughs> in your planned community in, in like the villages yeah and then you have you can show them like these are the different flavors we have like which one do you want <laughs> nice. so it's just like it's like you knock on the door and you say which flavor would you like right so how many people do you think you made buy a snow cone that actually weren't interested they just felt bad because like a kid's there knocking I, on the door. i would never know the answer to that but i know <laughs> it was hot and i think everybody was happy to do it okay got it so it was only on like hot days where people were definitely like oh yeah people okay. it was hot man like i don't think anybody i don't think it was a tough sell right okay nice that's huge you're like the ice cream man early on and did your mom like with the candy and with this was it kind of you that was having these feelings and you were like hey mom can we please buy this or it, it was kind of both of you brainstorming together or her maybe even um showing you how to be an entrepreneur early on no i don't think so i probably like i probably just asked like begged her to like take me to the store i mean i don't know if she like told, like, told me to do it or anything i probably like got the idea like i saw some other kid doing it on another bus and i was like oh i'm doing that on my bus you know, so, but I, I don't know how it really originated. Mm-hmm. That's cool. It's amazing. And, um, okay. So, you know, you went through high school and whatever else, it sounds like you're growing up in this town, pretty normal life. You go to OU. Was there a reason why you chose OU? What did you decide to study in school? Um, so I studied international business marketing and I ended up getting a minor in Spanish. Uh, I went there because, I had, I don't know why I just like went to so many schools. I, I went to tons of schools on the East coast, tons of schools on the West coast. And I, I couldn't, my mom wouldn't let me go to the West coast schools because they're too expensive in California. And then, yeah, I just, somebody recommended I visit it. And it was just, I mean, if anybody's been there, it's a, the most beautiful school. I mean, it's gorgeous. And um, I had, but right before that I had gone to like a bunch of like Southern schools and um, you know, everybody's very like, you know, preppy and dress nice and, you know, coming out of high school, I just wasn't dressing like that. So um, I just remember seeing a bunch of people in sweatpants and like, just like a cool, everything was very walkable. So I, I just fell in love with it. Um, and it was, you know, I got into the business school and just kind of, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at all. I just was like, well, I'm probably going to want to do something with business uh, because nothing else really is that interesting to me. Right. Um, and I just thought it would be useful. Got it. Okay. And then while you're at school, you and your now business partner, Jesse, other guys start a fraternity, right? How did you come up with the concept to start a fraternity? Because I don't think anybody's in college really thinking like, oh, I could start a fraternity and I'm going to do it. So, yeah. So it's interesting. We didn't, we didn't come up with the concept, like the, like the, the national organization already existed. Right. And so what they did is they, they came to uh, the school and they asked a bunch of other people like in the school, like, who do you think would be a good person to start a fraternity, like to be a founding father of some fraternity. And like, I don't know, a bunch of names got thrown into a hat. And then all of a sudden, like we were all there at this meeting. Uh, I don't even know why I went like a friend of mine just wanted to go. Cause you know, he said it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I was not interested in joining a fraternity, by the way. Um, I just thought that there were like a lot of issues that I didn't want to be hazed. Like I just, I just didn't, I wasn't into it. Um, and so what was most appealing to it, as I found out is that like, they, they basically like just gave us an, a pre-initiation and then left and then we're like, okay, now you get to start it. And so when I realized that it wasn't going to be something forced on me, like you guys have to do this, 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 you can completely control what it means to you. I was completely hooked because then now I'm in a room with like 
you know, 20, 30 guys. And, and we're like, wait, we get to actually decide every single detail about what this looks like. And so we started to create, you know, our pillars of like, what does that mean? And so we hated hazing. We didn't haze. We yeah. hated the way that other people like were treating each other, like another fraternities. And like, we just were doing like the opposite of that. So we just, we, we decided to brand ourselves as the non-fraternity fraternity. Like we're not those guys. We're not those frat guys. Um, because we just felt that it a bad, had a bad connotation. And um, yeah. So, I mean, that's where I met Jesse because me and him were on the executive board, like, you know, trying to charter and become an official organization. You don't just get handed it right away. It takes mm. like, it took us three years. And um, yeah, it was like, you know, we had a lot to do. You got to raise money. You have to get a certain grade point average. Like there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And it was a, I mean, it was an insane experience. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys kind of started with a group of people that were interested. And then out of that initial group, some became interested like yourself and Jesse and others. Um, how did you all, did you choose a president right away as you guys were talking with each other or how did all of this get organized? It just sounds kind of like a group of people and ideas just mm-hmm. getting thrown out. How did it organize itself? I mean, they try to organize in certain ways and you know, they, initially to got just get grabbed a couple of people and said like all right who wants to lead it and you know i mean what happened was i mean just like in any organization that you start a lot of people dropped out like the large majority dropped out and so throughout the next three years we we pulled in people that really wanted to do what we wanted to do like they really like understood it and we're like down to like sacrifice i guess um so it's something that evolved over over three years. It just didn't happen right away. And and so um, I, you know, at first I just like was like, oh, let me do, I'll do the philanthropy. And so I jumped in and I was a head of philanthropy. And then I was like, and then there was an opportunity to, to jump in to be the president. And I did that mm-hmm. um, because I was really clear about what it needed to be. Like, what were we trying to do here? Um, and I, you know, college guys are not very, you know, good at keeping their word, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And like, I don't know, there was something about it where I was like, man, this is going to be so big if we can do this. Like I have to do it. Like this is so much more important than like anything else. Um, so yeah, we I did that. And me and Jesse and a few other guys were, were kind of like the leaders of that group. Awesome. And so what was the main motivation that you're talking about? Cause it sounds like there was a drive. Was it to create something that was the non fraternity fraternity? Was it to create a legacy? Like what was driving you to, to keep up with this whenever you could have easily not? Yeah, I think it was being a founding father of something like being a creator of something that had no buddy before us mm-hmm. uh, was like really interesting to me. I thought the idea of having other people after we left that continue to do what we're doing um, with the same type of like core values would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, I felt like it was needed. Like I felt like it would make a difference in the community to, to like, to leave with something that would continue to live and like make the campus better as opposed to just like only partying. Right. Um, and it wasn't about like, I mean, they party super hard. It's just, it's more about their character. I think, uh, that was interesting. And, and so, yeah. And so we like, it was like a bunch of misfits. It was like, it was not your typical fraternity. It was like really like the weirdest kids ever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So then it sounds like though, because of this, everybody kind of 
gained a little confidence and it kind of changed everyone into not a misfit and somebody that's like a founding father of an organization. Um, probably a better student, better all around person. Yeah. I mean, it's very applicable to business. I didn't realize it then, but now it's like, yeah. are you kidding me? You know, that was one of the reasons that I think one of the things that gave me adjusted confidence to like jump into whatever we were doing. Cause we're like, we led all these kids to, to do something awesome and we didn't pay them any money. So like right. if we can use money to pay people, then we can build something great too. And so, um, yeah, I think I just, we kept pushing on, you know, a lot of the stuff you're doing right now won't matter in a few years, but this could matter. Right. right. And this is going to be something like, like that would be really fun to come back to. Totally. It's huge. And I've since, um, since gone back, like me and Jesse have gone back and it's, you know, it's still there. They have a house, like it's cool, you know, I, and some people want to understand it, but like, I just think it's, you know, we went back um, last year, Jesse and I, because we were invited to speak at the entrepreneurship uh, college. So they flew us out there and we, you know, did our whole thing with the school, but then we went and like visited the fraternity at their like new house. Mm. And the biggest thing that blew me away is that, you know, I had no idea they would be continuing to do all the things that we did. And so as I hung out with them more, I realized like, holy shit, you guys are, they're doing the same thing. Like they still believe like in the non-fraternity fraternity, they're still, you know, hyped on all the similar things and the way that they run their meetings is the same. And like, I just blew me away. And so, yeah, it's just a cool experience. Yeah. What was the most important thing that you were proud about that they were still doing? I was proud that they, just like what I was saying, I was mostly proud that they they wanted to represent themselves as people that were like respectful, you know, and like took care of each other in, in like a new kind of way, like in a way that was like, you know, we don't need to be the stereotypical fraternity. Like, I like that. I think that breeds like a lot of good people. And, you know, when you're young, you're an idiot. And a lot of people are super disrespectful to each other. And I just, you know, as an adult, looking back, like if there's ever a time where I was bad to somebody like really like mean, I like regret that so much now, you know, cause I don't, right. I don't do that. I don't need to be mean to anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, people are just bad to each other in college. <laughs> yeah. True. So did the kids recognize you, uh, as you went back to as the founding fathers or did you let them know, like, are there pictures of you guys on the walls and they're like, <laughs> it's Jesse and Zach. <laughs> no, no, no. There's nothing okay. like that. But we did, we did give them like a lot of, um, you know, history and they were, they loved it. That's cool. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So you're have a great experience at OU. Anything like happened during school that wasn't so fun? I mean, everybody has some crazy experiences in college, good and bad. I think any like traumatic experiences you remember during college? Yeah, there's one really traumatic experience that I had a, a good friend, family friend that, that passed away um, in my sophomore year, 2008, um, which was like just wrecked our family. You know, this kid was 16 years old and just died in the middle of the night. Um, and so that was, that was, that was pretty like altering um, for me. And like, is my little brother's best friend mm. who died. Um, so yeah, that was like a huge one. And like that honestly gave me like a shit ton of fuel too to like, be like, wow, life is short, man. Like th- let's just not waste time doing totally worthless stuff. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty hard um, going through that and then like being away from family. But, you know, I spent a lot of, it happened in the summer. So I spent time yeah. back there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, so that, that, that happened. Interesting. Was he part of the community as well? Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. Big part of it. Got it. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. I feel like everybody in college, you know, there's such high highs, but such low lows too. It's the first time you're out on your own. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because with your story, what comes next is you don't get a corporate job like pretty much everybody. I remember at Penn State, it's just, you know, you, you have your new job lined up so that you could tell your parents and their friends, like, this is my job. You decided, <laughs> right. you decided to go to Spain instead. Um, what happened there? I know you had a blast. So, I mean, one of the things that I didn't know I would be so interested in was Spanish. I just like had a buddy that was doing it. And so I just got obsessed with it during, during college. And I was in Mexico studying abroad. And so by the time I graduated, I spent like maybe a week home. And then I went um, and just traveled all around uh, Europe. Now, were you saving money up for this? Did you know you were going to do this as well? Or no, I had no, I actually went on birthright. So that was a free ticket there. Mm -hmm. Did it extended my trip like a year out. Uh, and, and then from there I went to Italy and like just traveled around. So no, I didn't prepare much. I didn't really have any money at all. So I worked, I like got jobs when I was there. I like had literal, like, like legitimate, like working out employment opportunities that I figured out for myself. Right. Because, but so, okay. You travel as a a kid with no money really, but you at least have this birthright experience, but then you're like, I'm going to prolong it. It Makes sense too. Amazing. But you don't have money. And I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is if you're like overseas, it's not the easiest to like apply for a job because you're, like an immigrant, right? So how did you even yeah. find ways to make money while you're doing all these travels? Well, like I had enough money while I was just traveling when I was moving around, um, like to get me there. But then once I decided to like actually like set up shop and live in Spain, then I like had rent and like all these other expenses that I definitely didn't have money for. Um, so I, let's see, the first thing I did was I converted my resume into Spanish and I handed it out all over the city. Um, and then I just went to every bar I could find and I like asked them if they could hire me and like I got hired. <laughs> um, Pretty quickly. Like it didn't take that long. No, very wow. fast because, wow. because there's, you know, there's always tourists in any places that you go. So fortunately, like if you speak English, you're in a really good shape. So I ended up being the guy that would go uh, for one bar that would just go out and grab the gringos and bring them in. I'd find other English speaking people and bring them into the bar, uh, give them a little coupon. And Amazing. it was easy. I mean, it was super easy. I just, and that was like a really cool way to meet people too. So I met a lot of my really close friends, um, just like soliciting them on the streets to come in and like have a drink with me. Mm-hmm. Amazing. <laughs> I did that. Um, I got bored with that pretty quickly. And at just when that whole thing ended, um, I got um, a call from one of the places I had dropped my resume off to, which was like a, um, it was this school this language school. And they're like, we need you to start immediately. And I was like, okay, all right. So I just like came in and started, didn't even know what, like, what the deal was. And I found out that they were like this intensive um, English school where they would bring in all of these soldiers from Madrid who were going to Afghanistan. And they would teach this intensive English class, um, which is like eight weeks straight, like every day, all day. Wow. And they had a, a, like an English girl and an Irish guy and they had no American accent and they needed the American accent because they were going to Afghanistan. 
wow. you're doing a bunch of Americans. Yeah. So I taught for a long time. I taught these soldiers who were like, you know, all older than me, um, English. And that was my job. Um, of course they must've done it under the table. Cause like, I don't know how they paid me. Like, <laughs> yeah. again, I don't have a work visa. Right, and you're just out of school. So you're like, I guess it's good. Right. I, didn't, I, mean, well, I have no, I have nothing. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's like laxed, but they didn't, they never asked me for any sort of like documentation. Yeah. I just knew that I like, I was just like, I want to work here. And like, I, you know, spoke Spanish. And so they were down. Um, so that was a really, really cool experience. And like, and the, a bunch of the soldiers became good friends of mine. And I went and like, hung out with them, you know, later on at their respective like cities in Madrid. Wow. So crazy. And then why did you ever come back? I mean, it sounds like you're having a blast over there. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I even had a girlfriend out there, like a serious girlfriend. Um, This all started like on your own, right? Like you might've, you met some friends going over to Israel for birthright and then like no one came with you to Spain or did a couple? No, no, nobody came with me to Spain. I, 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 I met up with certain people along the way, but I was traveling by myself. And, um, for you. and when I was living in, in Spain, like, you know, I had a, I had a uh, Norwegian roommate an Italian roommate later on, I had another Spanish roommate. So like, you know, these are people that I really became close with and we had like a huge group of people out there and it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, just like living and thriving out there. A lot of them were studying, but I was just working. Yeah. Interesting. And this common theme of like Zach Hurley kind of being with strangers and then forming good relationships and creating community. It's really cool. Okay. So something brought you back. Yeah. I I don't know really. I I think I just, I just had this weird itch, I guess, you know, I was like, I just, I wanted to go back to the States and just do something. Like, I think, um, I always had some sort of idea in my mind that like, I was like, I want to do, I want to do something big. And I didn't feel like that was going to happen. in in Spain and Mm -hmm. it wasn't very tangible, but I just remember feeling like, all right, it's just time to go. Yeah, I get it. So you broke a heart out there and moved on. (laughs) Right. Broke a heart out there, moved on, came back. Um, Yeah, I came back. And then, you know, now I'm just like a kid with a degree with no job uh, back at home. I ended up working at my old summer camp for for, uh, the summer Mm -hmm. where I ended up meeting my current wife. Um, Did that. And then... um, I, I, I guess I worked, I worked with my mom for a little while, which was amazing. I mean, like I, I somehow finagled my way into getting paid the rate of the, she, she works for the government and she's a government contractor and she helps these people win these huge proposals. And I somehow got them to pay me a hundred dollars an hour to like be their project manager while I was looking for like another job. So that was like a few months of that. Um, and you know, finally like, uh, you know, I got this opportunity with, that's how that led to Vocus. Cause you know, Donna had actually, my wife had been working uh, at Vocus uh, while she was at school. And so oh, she interesting. told me all about it. But yeah. That she actually introduced me to, to the company. And you were breaking up for a little bit. What was the rate that you got? It was the same rate as who? Was that, oh, I got, they paid me a hundred dollars an hour, which was the same rate as like the head project managers. <laughs> but like we were sitting in this meeting and I remember we were just like, this guy's an idiot. And so then yeah. we talked to the, the, his boss afterwards and we were, and me and my mom were like, uh, can we just make Zach that give Zach this guy's job? And he agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and he literally was done. Amazing. And then like, wow. and then I just did that job for a while. And wow. it was like, this is so funny. That's so cute. It's like you and your mom back together again. That's amazing. Um, okay. So then Donna is working at Vocus. You end up working there. Uh, let's quickly go through that. Cause I think it's some experience sales stuff. 
Um, what did you do at Vocus? What is Vocus? Are they still around today? I don't think they're even around or they got bought uh, by some other company, but yeah. um, they, so they sold uh, marketing and PR software and it's really intricate, cool stuff. Um, I'd always been just really interested in marketing. So I wanted, I was really excited to work for a company that was doing that. And um, the sale, it was a sales role. It was just like a lead general. I mean, like it was like bottom of the barrel, like you're just setting meetings mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like, I'm going to totally suck at this or I'm going to be super awesome at it. Like it's going to be one or the other. So, you know, let's just check this off the list. If this doesn't work, then I'll go and I'll like do something like artsy or I don't know. Like, I don't know what I was thinking I would do if it didn't work out, but. But you were thinking, it sounds like I'll test this out and this will be um, something where I can grow. You weren't thinking like, this will just be like a good steady job for me. You weren't thinking that. No, no, no. Like, yeah. no, it was 100%. A t- it was a test it was, yeah. it was like, I have to see whether this is going to be something I'm really good at yeah. because if I am, then I think it'll mean something huge. And if I'm not, then I could just move on to something else. I, I never was interested in like just a random steady job. Got it. And then, so uh, how did you do? I did really well. Um, I learned a ton. I learned a lot really, really fast about, um, you know, how to get people to just kind of like be vulnerable with you on the phone really fast. And, um, and you know, I'm talking to small business owners, mostly I'm talking to people that are trying to grow their companies. These are other entrepreneurs, right? And so this was a interesting experience. Like I'm, you know, I'm calling like a hundred different people every day that run their own companies in every industry. Mm-hmm. So I think that was like an interesting insight into like, man, like what, like, wow, like people, have problems like people are starting companies but then they just can't there's a big gap between starting a company and it being successful right Mm -hmm. and so yeah i mean just doing that over and over and over and over and over again yeah yes i'm selling them like different marketing services and you know but but i also consulted them like in a big way and and the more i did it the more i got confident in like what i was offering and like how i was helping them out and what Mm -hmm. questions to ask um so it became not just like a good training for how to sell something, but um, more like what is the true way to be a good salesperson is you listen mm-hmm. and you really dig into understanding what is this person trying to do? Can I help them get there? Right. Um, and so, yeah, that was it. I mean, I did, I worked under a bunch of different people. I did some government stuff um, and then like, you know, got promoted to a full, you know, quota carrying rep and then, you know, started selling so, you know, everything myself, calling and closing deals and all within what kind of time frame? We speaking like months, couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole experience was less than probably like less than two years, mm. a little less than two years for the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of the top people, uh, in the company or in my like division, I guess. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, I just say, I guess I got kind of got a little bored, uh, towards the end, which had me you know, scheming with you. Was it bored or was it more you thinking the same thought that was earlier? Like I'm destined for bigger things. Like I want to do bigger things. Yeah. It was like, I've learned everything I need to know. I definitely don't want my boss's job and I definitely don't want my boss's boss's job. Yeah. So that's, so I was like, there's no point in me staying here. Interesting. And I can see how your curiosity, I'm sure really served you giving people calls because you were just learning so much. I'm sure you were having a fun time digging in and learning. It wasn't like, I'm just going through a sales process. I'm sure you were actually very curious as to what these people had to talk about. 
Oh, it was, I mean, it was everything like that, that, that was why I was so into it for so long. Cause I got to talk to so many people and solve a lot of problems and like check in with them and like, just help them figure out like what, it, what can they do differently? And sometimes I would talk to people about stuff that had nothing to do with marketing. You know, mm. it's just more like what, like, where are you at? How can you reallocate money? Like why, what makes you think that you need to be spending that this amount of money versus that amount of money? And like, you know, it's, it is a consultative thing. And I think that's how I got into consultative sales. Yeah. Got it. That makes so much sense. Um, okay. So you're bored there. You know, you're not going to move on um, or you don't want to move on into higher roles. You end up in IndieSource, but how, how does that happen? Are you thinking, I want to do something entrepreneurial? Let me like start looking for those kind of things. So, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think one of the biggest catalysts was starting to read some of these entrepreneurial books. And I don't remember if you or Jesse like recommended it to me, but like reading the four hour work week was like mind blowing to me because I finally understood that um, you don't need to, to spend 10 or 20 years in a, in a corporation to be an entrepreneur and like start your own thing. Um, it, it just flipped everything that I knew about, what I had to do on its head. Mm-hmm. And I realized I can absolutely do this right now. I don't have to wait. Right. Um, and, and so one of the things that the, for anybody that hasn't like read this book, one of the things that it talks about is, is gaining independence. I mean, how do you get to four hours? Well, one of the ways you do that is by gaining independence, uh, location independence from where you're working. And so the way to do that is by, kicking total ass in your job and then asking for it based off of that. Right. And you say, Hey, go to your boss and you say, Hey, I've done X, Y, Z thing. Can I get off uh, you know, one day a week? Or you say, I'm going to hit these targets. If I do hit these targets, can you let me, you know, take a day off a week, you know, two days off a week and you slowly remove yourself uh, from that uh, while continuing to perform. I was at a place, I was at a place where I was performing at a, at a level that I just didn't feel like I needed to do that. So gradually. So, um, you know, it also came at a period where, you know, we had been doing a lot of the masterminding and I just kind of really went hard and and just decided, you know what, I'm going to move to Los Angeles and I'm going to see if they'll continue to pay for me out there. Um, and so I, I went to them. I told them I was moving and I said, I'm moving. You, you can either keep me or not. Um, but I'd love to continue working, um, remotely. And so, um, it was a big move and I think, you know, certainly risky, but, but I knew I wanted to go out and, and move to Los Angeles and start, start something. So, uh, I, I kind of just like gave him an ultimatum, I guess. And it's an amazing use case for the four hour work week, especially for somebody that has a corporate job because you did it perfectly. And it's not really asking to take a day off. You're still quote unquote working. Um, but you weren't during those times you were doing some other things. So you came out to Los Angeles to work full time on IndieSource pretty much well maintaining things at focus and keeping up with sales. And we, Zach and I lived together on a houseboat in Marina Del Rey during this time too. So I'd I'd hear him on the phones for focus and then he'd ride his bike over to the Indy source office. Um, I want to rewind a little bit because I find it interesting, right? Indy source 
sprung from a lot of different concepts and everything came together. But I think there was something that you saw in it, right? You had some long conversations with Jesse and myself and some other people, but it seems like you really dug into indie. Um, were you having other conversations with other entrepreneurs? Were you looking into other entrepreneurial things or yeah, kind of? Okay. I was, I was, I mean, I had been like doing a, I mean, I put together like business plans for like starting a cleaning company and I was like, go, uh, like at, uh, at university of Maryland and I'd built this whole infrastructure and I like, I just saw this huge gap. And so I, I was about to do that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, this, some, I realized there was a really bureaucratic reason that my business couldn't succeed. So I trashed it. And then, um, so I've been doing actually like a couple of different like entrepreneurial things at the time. Cause I was just bored at work, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but what, what really got me, I think was, um, I mean, I, I'm obsessed with like, like the, the ability to use and the reason I studied international business and marketing is because like, I, you know, I really think that it's a cool idea to be able to like work with different people in different cultures, you know? And so that's my favorite thing is traveling, meeting other people that are totally different from me and super weird to what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, you know, this would be an opportunity to really experience a lot of different culture and build something cool. And it wasn't until we went into to magic, that trade show when, when I really understood, okay, here's the opportunity. There's a dinosaur industry in apparel manufacturing. There's all of these old factory owners um, that have been doing uh, managing production a certain way for the big brands. And here you have all of these new entrepreneurs that want to start product companies. They want to make, you know, button down shirts. They want to make pants. They want to make jackets. You know, people want to get into this industry and there is nothing for them. And yeah, I I think, I don't know if you remember this, but we would go down the rows and just talk to the different people and everybody's printing on blank t-shirts, right? They're all just printing on guild and t-shirts. And we're like, why? Like, why are you doing that? You know? And so we just started to realize that everybody is doing that because, um, Number one, there's not an easy way for them to make something custom, yeah. right? And they would have to commit so much inventory and they just didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to put it together. And so, you know, we were working on um, selling Verdette and, and like that was definitely interesting and we made some money and that was cool, but... Verdette's a clothing brand. This guy from Peru had Pima cotton clothing, but it's kind of the kind of clothing that... What's The Rock's name? The Rock? The Rock, yeah, The Rock. Rock, that's okay. <laughs> the Rock. People know him as The Rock, so it's the kind of clothing that I think it's Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> that's what he would so, wear for sure, right? And we're like all trying to wear it, like sell it, but we're all like but we're super skinny, skinny white kids <laughs> trying to like show guys like for dad. So yeah, you totally saw an opportunity, and you were right. You know, just like us trying to sell a clothing brand. Um, you saw so many other entrepreneurs wanting to create something and it, you saw a huge opportunity there. And I think exactly. it's worth noting too, you still had your job at Vocus when you yeah. came out to the first trade show. Yeah. So you're like a, you really are just a great use case for the people that are at home or that are working and they wanted, they want to be an entrepreneur. They want to take that leap. Um, I think this is such a, a great thing. Um, so you saw that and then you decided, okay, this is what I want to focus my energy on. Yeah. I felt like there was, you know, just like a massive gap and I didn't, you didn't know, but I was like, man, cause we were struggling to sell the, the Verdette stuff. Right. And there were like issues even with that. And I'm like, these other people don't even have good product. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, it just seemed like the move, 
uh, to do this. And I, and the other, one of the other reasons is I, I liked that, like there was a, a way we didn't have like money. Right. So I was like, okay, this is something that doesn't require a lot of upfront capital. Right. So, you know, you end up trending out of focus eventually, you know, you have like a candid conversation with your bosses and they're like, okay, Zach, it sounds like you're not into this. And you're like, all right, I'm not. And yeah, you leave, but you got paid for a good amount of time. And, uh, so what was it like in the early days? What kind of, so you come in with this mission, uh, you know, I want to help brands manufacture clothing. What did you do? Did you start just cold calling around or? Yep. <laughs> we just literally called, we, we, uh, well, at first we were just doing it on the boat, but then we got a tiny little room in the in an office that we shared with this insurance agent. And I would, I didn't have a car. So I'd ride my bike to it every day, five miles. I mean, it's beautiful. So not complaining. I enjoyed it. Um, from the marina up to like Sepulveda near the airport. <laughs> and we would just set up shop in this little, tiny little room. And I would just cold call all day, all day. I mean, that's it. Like I would just cold call all day. And, and did it take a while for you to close your first client? And do you remember no, what that was? No, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think what we were doing at the time was like, just a wide approach. Like we were like, we'll just get anybody. And, um, but we had already, at that point we had already worked with like a couple of, of random people, um, like here and there just doing some different t-shirts out of Peru. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was really confident at that point about just calling people and, 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 and it was also an opportunity to ask what they needed. And so I, it was, it was fun to, to get in and start, calling strangers and figuring out what their problems were. Even if I didn't get to close the sale, I would leave the conversation knowing what they needed. Got it. And you would help them where you could. So it was very similar to your focus days. You're just getting yeah, into the thing. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And so people say, yes. How did you make the clothing? How did you start doing it? I mean, in the beginning we were doing everything out of Peru still. Right. So we were just, you know, we would get the order. We would, uh, work with the the factory in Peru and we would, we would manage the whole process. And, you know, pretty quickly we realized like the, the process of managing all of this abroad is it sucks because you don't have control they don't get back to you quick enough. And we're, you know, we're responsible for making sure that the product is perfect. Right. And so, um, yeah, we, we just started to like dig our feet in a little bit more in Los Angeles. And we realized that LA has everything in terms of infrastructure, in terms of labor, materials like all the things that we needed and so we started to pull out of doing it overseas and we realized it was really possible to do it in los angeles and um you know i mean from there uh we just kept following the problem right so the industry is extremely fragmented which means like if you want to do it if you want to build a collection you have your fabric guy you have your button guy you have a pattern maker you have sample makers you have cutters you have um people that do marking and grading like Everybody is separated. They're all split, split out and they're contractors, right? And what we were doing originally is, you know, we get the order and then we would go find these people and hire them and, you know. Um, and in Los to, Angeles traffic, like we're talking about, this could be a day long thing trying to get it from like a pattern maker to something else, right? Yeah. And then what happens is you do that. You, you get all these people and you go through the stages of making the thing and then the sample comes out and they're like, okay, it's wrong. And we're like, okay. So then you bring it to the sample maker, you say, hey, this is wrong. And they point to the, they say, no, that's a pattern issue. And then the pattern maker says it's a sample issue. So you just have a bunch of people that are spread out. Nobody's working together. 
And you realize like, wait a second, this is the one most important time of a product being created that like you have to get on the same page. Mm-hmm. And so we started like hiring people and, and bringing them in like on our team to work with us in the same place. Um, and so like first we got a pattern maker and then we got some sample makers and we got some cutters and like little, very slowly, we just added more people to the team to focus on the key areas that like, you know, we need to, to have covered and for there not to be any gaps. Interesting. And this is not really heard of in your world to have everybody in one place. There's, you know, I think there's people that do bits and pieces of what we do, but you know, we, we set out with a goal to build these brands, build successful fashion companies. And so what, you know, what people do, their approach is not necessarily the same as ours because often it's the, the way that other businesses work is they come and they help you just a means to get you into a production. So you make a lot of clothing. Whereas mm-hmm. our whole thing was, don't worry about production. Let's just make you a first prototype of exactly what you want. Let's build a perfect collection. And then from there, you can go out to a Kickstarter, you can go raise money, or you can invest in inventory, but you're not tied to the order. It's really like, take your time in product development when you're building a new thing that you want to uh, release into the market. And um, don't conflate the two. They're not the same. Developing and scaling something is different. Right. Interesting. So you're letting people have the custom and they can custom build their clothing instead of just printing on a white t-shirt. But now you're talking about everything, everything. So they come in and they pick different fabrics, right? There's millions of different kinds of fabrics, right? So they get a project manager. That's like a professional in this industry, right? At first we would do it, but they get a project manager that sources all of the different materials that they need. Then they pick them and then they go out and we engineer the fit of it. And then we get the fabric in and we cut and sew it and we put it all together. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, Hey, let's make t-shirts. It's like, let's make something that's could sell at Nordstrom's, you know, like this is like nice retail stuff. And I think that was a a gap because there's definitely people that do that and there's brands, but not in the same way that we were doing it. Got it. And so you help them create their collection. Typically a collection is for fall or spring, right? And you have, you have multiple things and then you go to a trade show is the normal um, industry standard. If you have the money to go to magic or something, you get a booth there and you hope that you get picked up. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. And then if these people want to then go into production, do they find somebody else? Um, So now they have the sample. Do they give it to some company that makes the clothing or do they bring it back to you and you we did it because that was the thing that we started with was production so we we handled all the production and we still do and it's a big part of our business Mm -hmm. um and but what has it evolved into is like really understanding like the key areas of where this issue is and so uh, you know what we do consistently is ask people like why are you like what are the problems that you have with with your product like turnaround okay so how can we do faster quality well what can we you know we hire qc people we hire procurement people like we have people that now that just order materials, mm-hmm. um, people that just oversee the garment itself. Um, and we have somebody that just communicates with our clients so that they know exactly what's going on. But I mean, you know, back then it was just me and Jesse um, running around doing everything. And in the beginning, it's hard, man. You get a lot of, I mean, just back to like being a non-technical founder is that like I had no background in this industry. It was simply, there's a problem let's figure out how to make it better. Right. And 
I mean, I think that the best thing that, that anybody can do when they're in that situation is like, you're, you, if you're not a technical founder, you're going to be leveraging technical people, right? Like most likely you're going to be working with technical people to make something happen. And so for me, it was just, how do I find the best people in this industry and put them all together? Yeah. And so that's a hard thing, right? It's uh, how do you, how do you know who the best people are? You fail a ton. Like I've gone through so many pattern makers, so many sample makers, like you hire them, they screw up, you get rid of them, you hire you, they screw up, you get rid of them. I mean, like, you know, I don't think I would make all those mistakes again, but all of the mistakes were valuable. Right. Um, is there advice you'd give to somebody today? Cause I think it's, you know, it's funny in the technical, non-technical world, we're talking about software engineers out here in Silicon Valley, but you're mm-hmm. such a great um, example of a non-technical founder in terms of textiles. Is there advice you'd give to other people in your industry for how to learn faster about how to choose the right people? Yeah, I would. Um, I would figure out what the key requirements are from by talking to other people first, right? So I would say, if I need to hire this person, then I and I don't know how to qualify their skill level, then mm-hmm. before I go interview them, I need to go talk to somebody that knows this way better than me, and ask them to give me very, very detailed metrics for what success looks like, right? Um, or, or almost like have them be the deciding person. Because I think at the beginning, we didn't know what to look for, right? right. Now I know what to look for. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a position where you need to hire somebody, but you're not sure whether they're going to be um, at the skill level that you need because you don't know really what to ask, then you have to go and get somebody else to, to support that process. Yeah. Because otherwise you're just guessing and then that just costs so much money. Yeah. So there's that, there's that. And then I think on the hiring side, like my experience is reality is like, you know, the more and more I do this, the more and more I I'm like, you know what? Good people are worth the money. Um, and I know in the beginning that's really hard to do because you don't have it, but man, like the difference between an average person and a great person, it's, it's just so huge. And so, um, there's a lot of people that we went through because we were saying, Hey, this, we're just only offering this amount, you know, Mm -hmm. this is all we have. So we're just offering this amount. But what happened is then they would, you know, we'd hire them and there'd just be issue after issue after issue. And so, and that would like permeate through the whole company. And so I, you know, over the past few years, we've just really hired like really, really, really good people. And I mean, yes, they're, you know, sometimes twice as expensive, you know, as, uh, as the other people, but there's no problems. Mm-hmm. So it changed the whole infrastructure. Interesting. So that's what you've evolved into nowadays is a ton of high quality hires. Has the business model stayed the same throughout the years? Is it exactly like you mentioned in the beginning, just having each piece of the puzzle, you're creating uh, samples for different brands and then helping them put it into production? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely evolved and, and I think it's at a place now which, which is, continues to focus on like the why of what we're doing. It's like, how do we help the brands? What do they need? So there's more support and development. You know, if they need graphic work, we do that. If they need um, support with label making, we do that. Like this, the project managers really can help them. They can help them 
set up their UPS accounts and the accounting systems. And it's like infrastructure building, right? Like what do you need as an entrepreneur so that you're in good shape to, to, to like kick ass. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that a lot more. Um, and, and giving them the flexibility to, for us to work with them how they need. Um, so is that, and then we're, we're actually launching um, our marketing division, which is exciting. What does so that entail? One of the biggest things that, you know, I hate to, I, one of the biggest things that I hate to hear is, all right, we made you an amazing product and uh, like you're super happy with it. And, you know, and we call and follow up in three months and nothing's sold. And we start asking like, why is anything sold? Like, how's it going? What kind of money are you investing in marketing? What are you doing? Like, how are you selling? How many people have you talked to? Like what, just all the things, same questions that I would normally ask anybody or I used to back at Vocus. And there's not a lot of good marketing going on. And so we, we want to be, be able to continue to build successful brands. And um, I, you know, I just have an incredible network of, of just great marketers near me and around me. And so we thought we, we could really add a component to the, to the business at, you know, as an agency which we are, you know, we're a manufacturer, but we're also an agency um, to, to bring in folks that can do some great marketing and, and help them increase their digital footprint and, and get sales. I mean, that, that's the main thing. So, so now it's kind of like expanded. We have product development, we have full package manufacturing, um, and then we have the ability to market uh, the brand. And so that's a, it's new and something that we're, we're looking to, to bring in some um, organizations that are uh, interested to work with us um, and give them a really good deal uh, in exchange for just like, we're just going to show results basically. And then just use that to keep building. So interesting. And it seems like there's a play here too, because you know, you build a collection and like you said, sometimes you just, you're sitting on inventory, right? Let's say that you decide to go all in in production it's in stores or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Now you're sitting on thousands or millions of dollars worth of product. Um, It seems like there's an opportunity for somebody out there to create something that's helping sell this extra inventory possibly. Yeah. But- There's a lot of different ways that you could, you could do that. But I think yeah. uh, what, like my experience is, is kind of that there's people are just too spread too thin and they're trying to do too many things and they don't really know where to spend their time. So, so you're creating kind of like a, a blueprint for them to be able to market their products in a successful way. So if they use, your marketing agency, they should see sales rise because they're just doing things the way that they should be to sell them. Yeah. But we're, we're going to be running their actual ads. Right. And like we're looking at the data and I mean, what happens when I look at the data that, you know, other agencies want to understand the implications, but I'll understand, we'll understand, Oh, this style is selling. What does that mean from a fabric perspective? Right? Like we can interpret the things that are happening and understand not just like with this style of selling, but like, Oh, okay. Like what are the cost implications? No one else can do that. Like there's other manufacturers that are helping you sell period. Right. That's interesting. So, you know, I asked you in one of our, uh, you know, rounds ahead of time to, to prepare for the conversation about Teespring and how they, um, you know, if you guys ever thought that you'd do something like that and you said, you know, you wanted to do custom clothing, not printing like them, you know, they are exactly that cookie cutter. We have a t-shirt, customize it. Mm-hmm. Um, though they're doing, you know, they're probably a billion dollar company or something, or maybe not, but they've raised a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know they used to do a lot of 
um, revenue and business. Do you see any tech plays like this um, for for you guys specifically? Do you think you oh, could yeah. pivot into something technical? And yeah, what's that look like? Are you actually going to move forward with it? Yeah. I mean, the tech play for us is way bigger than just, uh, you know, t-shirts is one thing. And I like, I understand that there's definitely opportunity. They, they were smart in the way that they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I'm, I'm super interested in the harder thing to do, which is how do we, um, how do we use technology to create personalized products and custom products from an on-demand perspective? Like that's, what's going to actually change the game in the parallel industry is being able to produce something after it's sold. And so it's a completely different structure. I mean, it's one thing to just like print on a t-shirt after it's sold. Right. But to be able to have sitting fabric in a roll, right. That you then cut print. So, and then ship out is a, it's an entirely different ball game. It's much more difficult and it certainly requires being close to the customer. So like one of the first things we have going for us is that we're here, right? We're right. We're, we're near where the stuff is sold. And so one of the things that we're looking into is, is being able to create on demand uh, manufacturing. It requires limiting um, certain components. Like you can't use a bajillion fabrics. You have to limit that. You have to limit the fabrics that you use yep. and you have to limit the blocks that you use. But what we can do is um, we can create a play where we're working with um, different retailers and folks where there's a good demand side. And then on the, on the fulfillment side, we just stock different inventory of fabrics and blocks and we just produce those. Um, so there's a couple of uh, tech companies that we're working with right now that have some amazing capabilities to help us do that and streamline the on-demand. Um, and I'm excited because, you know, I think we can really add a lot to it. It's easy to go after a big organization and just um, like work with H&M. But what I was telling them, it's like, you got thousands of little guys, entrepreneurs that want to start this stuff right now. Like, wouldn't it be cool to give them the keys, give them an opportunity to do something like this, not just start with H&M who can already, you know, has billions of dollars invested in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So like, that's my pitch to them. Like, yeah, we, I can still do the retailer stuff, the biggers, but you know, why not give the guy in Silicon Valley who's doing, you know, a a sweat resistant t-shirt line. Like, why not give him the ability to produce on demand? Like that would just change everything. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're doing that kind of thing and, and that's going to be the biggest, uh, needle mover for sure is, um, so that's to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. It's, um, you have automated cutting machines, you have a process that skips past a lot of like the pattern making that we do where we're just inputting certain, um, shapes into the computer and, uh, and a lot of printing, which, you know, sometimes you'll do printing instead of having like a die. Yeah. Right, which will allow that to be fast. So just little things that, that would allow us to make it quick. Uh, but ultimately what the industry is moving towards is less inventory and higher quality and more transparency in how stuff is made. And so I feel like we're uniquely positioned to like, j- like jump on that train and yeah. like really like, you know, uh, yeah, I'm waiting. I'm trying to see how, who we can partner with, who understands the value of, of where we're at having launched all these brands. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, there's a, um, you know, technical person or a coder or somebody that would want to jump in and partner with us. I think there's a lot that can be done. And it's a, the, the interesting thing is that it's such an old industry. So it's just like begging to be, uh, disrupted, disrupted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it truly is. And I, I think with the, 
the different machines you're talking about that are replacing some of these pattern makers or whatever else. And obviously you can't replace them all. You want them to be around, but for certain things, um, now you're automating it. And yeah, if you have the software piece simultaneously making it super, super simple for people to play around online exactly, and, and make product samples, that, that would be amazing for you guys. And right. It'd be great to be able to, to, to allow people to design and, and control different parts of the garment uh, from wherever they are, you know, mm -hmm. that really give the, the power back to the individual. Yeah. The designer. That's huge. Um, to take it back a little bit, you know, we've been close friends for a while. I feel like I talked to you at least a couple times a month. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because sometimes we'd be talking and it's like super exciting news. And then other times we'd be talking and we're like, shit, I don't even know if the business is going to last. Like, <laughs> <most of pay. laughs> right. but, you know, the listeners don't know you. What, what was like the worst time? What was like the darkest day or days of IndieSource, if you can remember? And what did it feel like? What was going on? Well, I mean, I think probably the, you know, there, there were times where, when you scale up a company and you have like, you know, 30 people, which is where we're at, like cash moves fast. You, you, if you don't have like investment, like the cash can go quickly. And I think one of the mistakes that we made as we started to scale really fast um, is that we, we didn't keep the right balance of sales and marketing versus fulfillment side. And so we grew and we sold all this stuff and then we kept hiring people, but then we just didn't have enough over here. And so, yeah, there's, there's been times where I, you know, had a, my whole credit line gone, no money in the bank, like, and you know, like the first people I pay is like my team. So when, and me and Jesse don't pay ourselves, like that's how it goes. You have to do that. Like we for sure will be the last people to pay ourselves. Mm. And, um, you know, fortunately we've been able to crawl out of that, you know? So you have times like that and then they go away because you hustle and you, you bring in more business. And um, yeah. So I'd say like definitely the scariest times is when you just, you're running out of cash. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, sometimes like my wife, Roya, just this would like freak her out. Right. And then, and sometimes people will ask me like, well, what happens if your business doesn't like, if you're just, if it's not working, um, sounds like we're similar, but it, so for you, you're not like freezing and just thinking like, oh, I'm such a shithead sounds like you're kind of like put into like fight or fight and I'm just going to make this succeed however possible mode. We've done it long enough to know, like we have a product that we can sell. And so we need to shut up, put our head down and just do it and go find the people that need what we have. Got so it. that's the difference. It's like, I definitely, you still get the anxiety, you still get all the things, but you trust in your ability to pull yourself out of it. Um, and so you just can't stop. So mm -hmm. you have to put in extra time, extra hours. And like, then you have to, and you have to make certain sacrifices too. Like you have to cut certain expenses and just you have to stay looking at your P and L's nonstop to make yeah. sure like, okay, am I, am I overspending or is this something I absolutely need? Got it. And so this has happened a couple of times for you guys as you've been growing the company or. Yeah. Yeah. We, cause we don't have, like I said, we have a line of credit, but we don't have any investment. Like we don't have cash from anything yeah. else. It's just entirely bootstrapped. So yeah, it's been scary uh, at certain times. Um, but you just, I guess you just work through it with, um, you know, it's nice to have a partner to go through it with. So. Yeah. True. 
would you guys take investment if it was the right kind of investor? And if so, what would they look like? Uh, yeah, we would uh, because we have big goals. So I think, you know, we need to, to do that. I, you know, we're, we're hoping to have a really good year and um, you know, hopefully like, like a strong uh, P and L to show an investor at the end of this year what that would look like ideally is somebody that has experience in the industry that understands what we're doing and sees the value in it and sees the application for um, us being kind of like a catalyst for all direct to consumer brands, right? So you see all these digitally native direct consumer brands that are popping out. But one of the things that is always fascinating to me is I'll read the, you know, history of different brands. Like, you know, I was reading about, uh, Sarah Blakely's like Spanx company, right? Uh, I read about um, Untuck It and how they got started. Mm. And like every single story, their origin story is terrible. It's like, you know, she's like, tries to go to these manufacturers. Nobody would help her. No one cares. They're super old school. Yeah. Like I think the Untuck It guy was like, we had like 14 samples. They were all terrible. <laughs> like it was just like, they had to g- deal with so much shit. Yeah. to get to where they went. And, and what that made me think of was how many other people just like them went through that, but then quit. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, like, like probably hundreds of right. people, probably yeah. hundreds. Right. And so if you think about it, like that means there's a ton of more things that, that really probably were awesome that didn't get made and people right. just like ran out of money. Yeah. So, you know, our mission is like, how can we make sure that that just doesn't happen again? If somebody has a really good idea to solve a problem with a product, then, you know, we can help them create it. They just need to have the idea. They need to be serious about it. And like, they don't need to walk in dark alleyways of LA or any other city to try to find like a pattern maker and then find another sample maker and then find the fabric and then piece the whole thing together. Like, I just don't, think that that makes sense as, especially if you're a non-technical founder doing right. something like that right right exactly so i mean this sounds huge right especially the two companies that you mentioned i mean there's obviously business to be done out there um this sounds like an opportunity for an investment right out here in silicon valley typically people are looking for um well marketplaces and platforms that can scale right so that you can get a little piece of a lot um Ryan, my buddy that I'm going to be interviewing, has um, just announced that they've done a billion dollars on his platform. So he's connecting retailers um, or distributors with um, cannabis products, right? Products and mm-hmm. distributors. And there's so much money in that. Do you? Is there that much money in your industry that you think you could kind of get moving in this in the smaller thing, or I guess it's kind of like you start up as many as possible and then some of them turn into these um, untucked or these spanks from your platform. Um, yeah. Yeah. You do that. I think they think the difference as well is, you know, like I said, or you had mentioned with uh, the acquisition of the kids line, um, little mass, like that's, that's a play because there's, you know, the brand themselves ha- themselves have such a great opportunity to grow and scale in addition to what we're doing. And so I don't see those as separate. I see it like as, you know, industries being like hub and like a, like a machine for creating these good brands from a product development perspective, like making awesome stuff, but being smart about the financials behind it, um, producing just what we need and not more. 
uh, marketing it and promoting it and getting that the word out. Um, and so we have that ready to go. And so being able to drop in different brands and, you know, taking equity positions in, in different kinds of brands is, I think as an investor, it makes a lot of sense because then now you, you have a machine built for creation of brands and then you have brands in there too. Right. And so it's less, uh, it's, it's good to diversify, right? It's amazing. Yeah. It seems like a huge opportunity. So if I were an investor, I think what I, the reason that I would be interested in, in what we do is because we're the first people that get to know about the business. Cause who do you call first? You call the manufacturer, right. Right. You call the person that is, is going to make your product. So we have access to dozens of different brands. I mean, we have 35 brands in the product development right now. Yep. Right. And we have 15 that are doing production. We've done over 300 different brands um, in lots of different categories. Uh, and so it, you know, all these things just give us like an insight into the industry that I don't think everybody has. Yeah. That's amazing. And do you think you can scale that number up a lot? So 300 different brands, do you think you could scale that to 300,000? Are there enough people looking to do something like this? No, I don't think there's that many, but I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm not about quantity in that way. I'm looking for, as I do, as I grow, I'm looking for more quality yeah. actually. Um, we definitely add more people. Like we're adding more project managers every day because they're like, you know, they're the industry experts that hold the hand and really put the whole thing together within our team for mm. the, for the fashion entrepreneur. Right. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's about being smart with which business idea has legs, right? Who's really solving a problem in the market versus just making another pair of leggings. I think that's an important question to ask. Right. That's huge. Um, so on the other side of things, you talked about some of your lowest moments. Can totally relate with that. Um, what are some of the, I mean, you guys have spoken back at your college, you've spoken at Magic, uh, your Forbes 30 under 30. What's like your most memorable, memorable experience so far with IndieSource where you were able to kind of sit back and just be like, this is cool. I'm proud of myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, it's hard to, to, to like do that. And I think, you know, I'm sure other people can relate. Like when you're grinding so hard all the time, it gets hard to give yourself a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. It is for me, at least I tend to not do it too much. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was certainly like the Forbes thing. I definitely didn't, didn't expect. And so it was very shocking how much, uh, attention that got me and just, you know, our whole, our, our whole friend group threw us a huge party. And like, it was just a, I guess that was a moment where we were like, wow, I guess we did grow pretty fast. Um, I mean, I think the reason that they even like were interested in, or like they, you know, nominated us or whatever. And we got in is because we were growing like, you know, two or 300%, you know, every year. And so it just, it just got to a high number pretty fast. And, um, and like, yeah, looking back at that, it was like, okay, I guess that was actually above average uh, compared to most people. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I don't do it too much. I probably should do it more often. <laughs> no, it, yeah, I, you do deserve to to look at yourself and um, appreciate what you achieve. But yeah, I'm sure that the little Zach that was hustling on the school bus, if he saw like before I'm 30, I'll be in Forbes, It'd be proud of you. But I totally get it. It's you've got to keep hustling or <laughs> other people are going to come up to you if you're exactly. I mean, I just have goals and I haven't reached them. Right. So it's like, right. I, I want to get to a different, different place and, and there's a lot of people to help. So we got to get yeah. going. Got to get going.
Um, what's a question that I haven't asked about IndieSource that you think um, would be helpful to this audience or that we should have gone over? I mean, I think, I think, you know, you said something about the, maybe that the audience are, are considering starting their own thing. And um, I guess this is something that I, I might have spoken about, but if I were to give one piece of advice um, to people that are starting, I, I think you have to look at the numbers statistically. Right. And like, the reason that we were able to get to where we are is based off of statistics. It's like, we just called enough people until we figured out what they actually needed. And then we pivoted like, that's it. It's not that got a ton of slack for not being a technical founder, you know, for, if you not got a technical for not having experience you, in industry. You broke up for a second. Yeah. I said, I got a ton of slack for not being a technical founder for not having experience in the industry. And like, that could derail people for sure. Um, but I just kept looking at the, I just kept hitting up more people until I figured out exactly what the problems were. And then we would pivot to that. We'd be like, Oh, okay. That's annoying to you. All right, we'll do that. And then we just started doing it. Interesting. You know? And so I think like, you know, indie source or any other company, it doesn't matter if you're, you're creating a, an app or, you're, you're doing, you know, blockchain or if you, you have to sell to someone and I, I would be willing to guess that like a lot of these people like have to sell and they have to make calls to folks to, to pitch their ideas or, or to get new clients. And like every single, I would just say like, it's important to have a sample size of over a thousand in anything that you're selling. Um, because often I find that that like people will give up at like 50 or a hundred or something. It's just not big enough. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that that's, I think it's a tough thing being technical um, in terms of software development I'm talking about now, um, because at times you, you, you forget about testing things out, right? So a lot of times they'll say that software engineers, instead of um, creating a product first, you can really just, I mean, everybody can create a small type form now and put it uh, put it out there to see if there's actually customers or users, right? Mm -hmm. um, just to test. And I think we're all a little bit scared of trying something out. So, you know, you might build a huge product to begin with, but that wasn't even needed. You know, you could have easily um, created a very fast product through Weebly or Typeform and tested to see if people would have paid for it um, or even made some sales calls too, which I think is tough. I think, um, you know, if you are technical, you're making up for maybe not liking the cold call. Um, though it's, I think it's always the best way to see if there's real life out there, you know, talking to real people, asking real questions and listening. Such a good point. Um, I, I would consider you an expert in sales. Uh, you did learn at Vocus that you could sell. You moved up quickly with the company. We're running out of time, so I don't want to go over it too much, but what what steps would you tell people that may have maybe never sold before in their lives? Like what, how do you do it? What are the kind of steps you should be taking? Um, okay. So there's process, there's like sales process. And then there's, how do you get, like, what is the language you use? Right. I think those are two different things. Like the process um, for me is, you know, prospecting, creating the people that you're going to reach out to separately and, 
and you do that as a batch, right? You just for look for all the people you're going to reach out to, and then you just call them, right? And you, you do these things all at once. So you get momentum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the process. Now you have your thousand people are going to call, you call them, right? And then you go to meetings and pitching and you do your pitching. So one of the things that I like to do in the sales process is really batching as much as I can, because I think, I think when you're first doing it, you get a little scared. So I would build a script and I would work on it. I would just practice it by yourself and with your friends and just like practice, like, what does that pitch sound like? Um, for me and for a lot of B2B companies, when you contact someone, you're just asking for time because you want to figure out whether they have, they're interested in, in talking to you later. So you ask them for time. Then once you schedule that time, you go on to what's called discovery. Discovery is the best part. Discovery is the most important part of the sales process. It's where you actually get to uncover the need of the person that you're talking to. And this could just be a person that, you know, is, um, you're just asking them kind of like survey questions, like about whether they would use your app you're making or like if what you're creating is valuable to them, that's still discovery, right? Whether you're selling to them or not, doesn't matter. That's the point where you get to determine the most important things that you want to uncover about how they think, what they need, what they care about, what pain points they have and where they want to go. And through that, line of questioning, you kind of like, you get that gold, that piece of gold, which is like, this is going to be the thing that they're going to be willing to spend money on. And so you keep, you write that down. You're like, okay, here's the thing. This is the golden nugget. Like this is the thing that's painful enough for them that they, they would be willing to pay for it. And it, again, it could be like a $10 subscription, right? In the beginning, you can ask them too. And so you use that. And so by the time you come to the closing part, you, you know, you just remind them of all these different things and you bring together like a complete solution for like what it is that um, it means to work with you. So um, my advice to anybody that's just getting it started in sales, I always tell this to my team, like, just calm down. You can't be wrong because you actually have their best interest, right? You're actually committed to helping these people. Like, don't freak out because, you know, you, and you don't have to have all the answers too. You can say, I don't know. Like just say you don't know. It's all right. It's a good question. I don't know. I'll look into that. You know? So those are some of the things. It's it's like half parts understanding what is your process and what are you gonna say? And the half parts just reminding yourself that like you don't have to have all the answers. And you can just be the guy that's just really, really keeps to your word. And when you say you're gonna do something, you do it. You don't have the answer, but you go get it. And you keep, you know, you keep touching, reaching out to them. And so that that would be my my advice for anyone getting started. Amazing. Thank you for that. Totally huge. Um, okay. Rapid fire questions and then we're going to end it. Thank you for speaking a little over our, um, allotted times as well. You didn't answer all of these ahead of time. So, um, no, I didn't answer most of it. <laughs> they're totally going to still be rapid fire. Do you consider yourself fashionable? I, I didn't. And you know, I'm feeling a little more fashionable these days considering like I get to wear my own stuff. But um, no, I, I don't really consider myself that fashionable, but, but I, I do, I've kind of developed a style, I think. Okay. Maybe your wife has something to do with it as well. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No? Okay. You dress yourself. Good. I dress myself. Uh, what positions is IndieSource uh, currently hiring? Um, mainly sales. Um, we're looking for, you know, folks obviously that, that have sold um, larger sized uh, deals um, we're open to marketing and, you know, I think the, 
the ringer is like, if there's anybody that would be interested in partnering up on some sort of tech play and, and building some, some sort of like um, design component with us. Right. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing as a software engineer, you know, you're always getting pitched. It's similar to us, Zach, people that haven't been entrepreneurs are like, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like, can you, I have this idea. Can you make this idea for me? Um, I think software engineers too, it's similar. It's like, you're a software engineer. Can you build me an app? Um, a lot of times they're working on things, but I think, um, there are a lot of technical people that listen to Hacker Noon podcast. If there are technical founders that can kind of, or technical uh, listeners that can relate with Zach and what he's working on this is the fun part. And I think that's where we're filling gaps, right? Not every founder needs to be technical of yeah. a startup. Um, there can be great synergies aligned. So yeah, I think it's huge. But then from our standpoint too, we really need to find some good software engineers and it's, it's a different play with, with that world. Um, cool. All those sound like great positions. Um, your favorite nonfiction book favorite nonfiction book. Well, I mean, I only basically read nonfiction. <laughs> so, I mean, I just read, uh, they call me Supermensch. That was amazing. Um, I, I mean, I read any, like, I guess my favorite, I, I listen to anything that Ryan Holiday does. I read that. I listen, I read anything from Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and obviously, you know, Tim Ferriss stuff, but, and, and I, I'm, I'm getting into like a lot of, um, just like biographies and autobiographies mm. are just super fascinating to me. Like I just started doing Winston Churchill's uh, biography and it's just like, it just blows your mind. But so people cool. actually do, you know? So th yeah, those are some of the, the ones. Okay. I won't ask you your favorite fiction book. Uh, your favorite non-indie source hobby. My favorite non-indie source hobby. I mean, just traveling. You know, my favorite thing to do is traveling. It's yeah. just going out and just not having uh a plan and wandering the earth as i do amazing uh one sentence of advice for founders looking to sell a product ask why five times like just keep asking why to uncover the the real uh answer because if you get a no that doesn't mean no it means no and something else so if you are trying to sell something or you're trying to understand how you can create a solution like you got to ask why more so mm -hmm. dig 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 because the answer you get the first time is only a clue to what the next question should be right so if somebody says no i don't need that then you can say okay what about it do you not need right or what do you need and so it's more about understanding that the the gold is in like the fourth fifth or sixth layer of the why or tell me more and so you have to be to listen after you pitch something you you say hey i want to offer you this thing do not get caught up in the no don't get caught up in any of that it's really just an opportunity for you to dig a little bit deeper and figure out what it is that they're really saying and i've had conversations many times where i call somebody cold and they tell me to screw off right but by the end of it we're you know best friends because i just i'm just genuinely curious and like what are they up to and what's going on so, so ask why more, but really listen to what they're saying when they're talking to you. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Zach, thanks so much, my man. This was gold. Uh, how can people find you, find out about the company? Yeah. So we can, you can find us at indiesource.com, uh, Instagram, indie underscore source, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, 
um, you know, I'm doing a lot of educational content for anybody that might be interested in starting a product and, you know, you don't have to be a fashionista. This is not what this is about. I have a lot of, um, like really interesting people that, you know, that have, uh, you know, coding jobs and, and they'll call me because they want to start some product or they want to get tangible with it and, and feel something and, and create something interesting. And so, um, you know, my goal with all the content that I do is just to be able to educate so that you're not starting from nothing. You feel, you know, confident in your ability to, to dive in, create something and, and actually use it, uh, in a reasonable amount of time. Cool. Indiesource.com on Facebook is Indiesource. Thanks so much, Zach. That was Zach, Z-A-C-K Hurley. You can find him at IndieSource.com. This is Patrick Murray for the Hacker Noon Non-Technical Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube. Follow us on social media. You can also find us at HackerNoon.com and Podcast.HackerNoon.com. Thank you.